Welcome to Stacy on the Right. Here we have our live video cast that we're doing at Family Vision Media, and we have another fantastic guest for you. So excited to have with me for the first time on the show, but hopefully not the last, author Adrian Norman. He's a columnist for Newsweek. He's also a member of Project 21 of the National Center for Public Policy Research, which I, I love working with them as well. And his columns can be found at newsweek.com. All of these links you'll find in the show notes for today's vlogcast slash podcast. Adrian, thank you for coming on today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. All right. So let's get into this. We have yeah. a topic that has been covered for years and years and years, decades, I'd say. Um, and we've, we've been pretty much the same on it the whole time. As conservatives, we really feel the two-parent family structure is, it's not, it's not even a feeling. It is proven. We have data, statistics, not just from government, from, but from NGOs and private organizations that prove to us that the two-parent family structure is the ideal. And even in the absence of that, just idealizing it assists others with making good choices when it comes to having a family. Where do you fall on this and what is your, because you, you have to kind of have a, a thought methodology for talking about this as a leader in this area. Yeah, I do. And I don't think anybody can really dispute with, with data empirically that not having a two-parent household is the ideal situation to, to raise the children and to have the family in. They're just very basic things like having two people to, to split the mortgage payment, having two people potentially to split the bills, having somebody extra to stay home with a child while the other parent may be working or running errands or what have you. There, there, there are obvious benefits that are fairly widely accepted. Um, I've written about this a little bit in the past, and the only thing that I would necessarily take umbrage with is the kind of one of the talking points we would hear in conservative circles suggesting that as many as 70% of black kids are fatherless. Um, that's a statistic that's demonstrably false. However, even when considering the actual data, you know, we're, we're still overrepresented in that category relative to, to other races. So it is something that still needs to be addressed and still needs to be talked about. Um, I just think we, we can have more productive, nuanced discussions in how we address this particular issue. All right. So let's start with that, because I think for anyone who's listening to the podcast, and we have especially um, engaged listeners on our podcast, they would say, okay, if I've got that statistic wrong, what is the correct statistic and, and how is it wrong? How is it wrong when they say 72% of black children are living in a home with a single parent? So it's wrong because it's 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 sort of, it's a common mistake that people fall into in terms of just a misreading of data. So what it is, is it's easy to get conflated the idea that someone is unmarried versus the idea of someone not being present in their child's life. There are plenty of parents who cohabitate who just have not signed a marriage license. There are people who are not married that live together. There are fathers who are non-co-residential that also see their children pretty frequently and are still very involved in their children's lives. Um, so that's kind of where that statistic, um, you know, gets skewed a little bit. Um, we've had CDC data since 2013 that actually <clears throat> took a look at the involvement. And we we're talking about somebody being fatherless or someone in their lives. It's not just about the, the zip code that the child lives in. It's about the amount of time that you're that a father is spending with their child and whatnot. And this data shows that, uh, and I'm, I'm going to read this directly, black fathers were most likely to have bathed, dressed, diapered, or, or helped their children use the toilet every day compared with white and Hispanic fathers. A higher percentage of black fathers aged 15 to 44 took their children to or from activities every day compared with white fathers. Among Hispanic fathers who didn't live with their children, 63% did not talk with their children at all within the last four weeks about things that happened during the children's day compared with 29% of white fathers and 21% of black fathers. 
Uh, a larger percentage of black fathers help their co-residential children with homework every day in the last four weeks compared with Hispanic or white fathers. And then finally, larger percentages of Hispanic and white fathers had not helped their non-co-residential children with homework at all in the last four weeks compared with black fathers. So there is some data that shows that even though um, black, black families may not be married in the same rates, black fathers are oftentimes just as involved as other demographics. And that's why a lot of times we get pushback when we sort of throw out those statistics because there are people who know this information as well. And um, again, I think it comes back to if we're willing to have a more nuanced discussion about this topic, um, we can have more productive conversations about how to move the needle forward, how to how to handle real issues in terms of maybe uh, decreasing disparities with wealth and income and those sorts of things. Okay, so let me, and this this is why complex conversations like this, to me, sometimes we do a disservice because we'll have a conversation about this subject on a major news network and there are only seven minutes in the segment, three minutes right. of those are the hosts, you know, preparing it and all that, you know, and then you get into the actual subject and the expert is on a panel of three, one's just there to argue and, and spout nonsense. And then right. the other two are serious and they get less than two minutes each. And you and I could have a whole hour long podcast on this. And I know your time today is limited and we're going to respect your time, but I do want to unpack this. And, and I, you know, Adrian, one of the things I think that sticks out to me, first of all, when you were quoting the statistics is, so there's a lifestyle difference there. It's not just marriage though, because in the households that you're discussing where the dads haven't diapered their children or, or that type of thing, they're probably in a more traditional nuclear situation where the wife primarily cares for the children and the father works outside of the home. So he's not diapering kids um, because that's that's the kind of lifestyle arrangement they have. But he's there every day and lives in the home. They share the same zip code and they're married. So under the nuclear family definition, that that fits. But then when you talk about the other fathers, the black fathers who are diapering every day, they're you know driving kids to and fro every day. They're in a co-parenting arrangement that may not have them living in the same household, but the, because of the co-parenting, they're often alone with the child. So there's a lot more one-on-one. -on -one. So right. it's it's uh, I guess we'd, we'd have to kind of come back to these same statistical uh, data points and then kind of look later in 10, 15 years and see if that non-cohabitational relationship still has the benefits of the one where the father is in the home. Regardless of that, I've always advocated for as a, a marriage and family and, and you know, kind of pu public policy commentator, I have always advocated for a more close relationship with both parents. Both parents have to be interested because there is a significant uh, rate of, um, well, you know, premarital um, uh, pregnancy and, and um, you know, drug abuse and things like that. These things happen in the suburbs as well, where the homes yeah. are intact, the families are intact. But perhaps that relationship is not there, which you're kind of highlighting in the statistics. So one quick question. Where did you say the statistics were? Because I'd like to link to those in today's show notes to make sure people. Uh, those are CDC statistics and I can send those to you so you have a direct link. Perfect. Because I, I think um, the other thing about that is, to me, it paints a picture of how and we may not like this, like, you know, I'm a Christian conservative. So our advocacy point is always, we always spring from the biblical worldview and the biblical concept of marriage is the one that we promote. Right. But in talking to people about public policy, if you want them to adopt your ideas, you can't start from a place where, you know, you're finger pointing and demeaning them 
their family situation is what it is. So if it's yielding a good result, instead of demonizing it, we can come alongside each other in places where we agree and find commonality and then come together. And you know, once you've come together on one issue, it's a little easier to see your way clear to hearing on another issue. So on family, and this is the toughest one, I mean, it's money and it's family. That's where we will get into the roughest knockdown dragouts about policy, right? I mean, nobody wants you telling them, you know, your family is non-traditional and that's why your community is X, Y, and Z. I know quite a few people who are my age, who are extremely successful, who are black, who also, well, they come from a non-traditional household where their mom was a single parent and it wasn't anything that anyone did wrong. The parents weren't together. The dad was not present and they still went on to college, get advanced degrees and are now running businesses or, you know, at principals at law firms. And so they really bristle at this idea that single parents can't raise good children who are successful later in life. But the statistics do paint a different picture for kids who are in persistent single parent households where the father is not involved, even if they're in a different home, you know, a a different nuclear home. And so there, there is, there is some truth to it. So what do you prescribe when you're talking about this? And I know you're sought after for your opinions in this area. What, what do you prescribe as the way to discuss this so that we can get some policy that actually helps families because the government's not doing a good job right now, Adrian. Right. Uh, I mean, the main thing is to just dispense with, uh, dispense with any stereotypes uh, that are simply not true and that are demonstrably, demonstrably false. You know, we have this notion, it's more the, the messaging, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of us, and, and I used to do this myself, this is a talking point that I used to use until I dug into this data and did a little bit more reading and kind of learned the truth about how, how how this issue has been framed. It's more framing than anything else. Again, we're still over-representative, uh, over-represented re- relative to, to other demographics. Uh, that's still a problem. Even one child without a father is, is one too many. So I think we have to have uh, just more of a discussion about uh, the facts. And then just look, if, if we're coming from a place of, of, of uh, demonstrating a true authenticity of, of wanting to help someone in their situation and wanting to, to bring about real change and not just score cheap political wins, then people are going to be more interested in having meaningful dialogue with us and, and hearing what we have to say and engaging on these topics. Um, I think that the issue has sort of been weaponized in a sense because it's used to deflect from other things. Um, there are only certain times that we hear about this issue. There's only certain times that we hear about the violence in Chicago. You know, it's, it's been weaponized. So when people feel that you're weaponizing their trauma and weaponizing their pain, the last thing they're going to want to do is sit down at the table and have a conversation with you. So I think that's step one, demonstrate real empathy and wanting to sincerely address these issues. Number two, um, you know, dispense with the, uh, again, the talking points and stereotypes. But I think overall, we just have to be willing to to try to engage more with people um, who are stakeholders in all of these issues and find real workable solutions. We have to be willing to to listen more than we talk. We have to be willing to sort of do the groundwork and dive in and really help address these needs um, and meet people where they're at to provide real solutions to, to all of these types of challenges. So I, I think, First of all, I think the thoughtful way that you're suggesting we converse about this does reflect a little bit more of what the Republican Party is trying to be right now. Um, and, it, you know, of course, there will always be outliers. There will always be people who are looking for a viral moment or a soundbite. 
whether they're elected or they're in the public policy space, it's more likely, you know, often that they're commentators and they're looking for that. But when it comes to discussions surrounding policy, deep thinkers actually have already been here in this space trying to have communication, genuine communication on what could be done. So that brings us to that place. Like, so Adrian, what do you suggest when you're when you're in a forum and you're discussing this issue, and it is a sensitive issue, no one likes hearing that the way that they were raised or their family unit is less desirable than another family unit. You love your family. You came from whatever you came from. And if you have done anything with your life, if you if you made it out of high school, you graduated and you're, you're gainfully employed, that's success in America today. I mean, we've had to kind of adjust because of the, the kind of, if there's a de- degradation in the family unit. And it's not just in the black community. It is happening in communities all across the country and people are alarmed by it and they don't want it to spread. So, you know, we can get tribal on it or we can get, you know, in a solutionary mindset and actually come up with things that solve the issue. So what do you advocate for when, you know, once we're in a space where we're having a conversation in a productive manner, then what? Well, I mean, it it sounds like we're, we're kind of debating on if, 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 if the uh, ideal family situation in terms of a traditional nuclear family is is indeed the best, when I mean, we kind of said at the beginning of the podcast that statistics show that it is. Mm-hmm. So it's one of those things where it's going to be an uncomfortable conversation because the data may not be what some people want it to be, but it just is what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, again, if, if people believe that you have their best interest at heart, then they're not going to be immediately offended or put off by that data. It's about how you present it. Look, I, I grew up in a two parent household, I was very blessed. I can remember days when, uh, so so my dad had, we lived in the suburbs and <clears throat> this was in Cincinnati, Ohio. And he had to walk probably a mile to the bus stop to catch the bus all the way downtown to go to work. And then the end of the day, he did the same thing in reverse, took the, the, the bus all the way back to the suburbs, had a, a mile walk back to the house. And, you know, I remember days when I would run down to the end of the street and meet him before he even got to the house and jump up on him. You know, those are moments that that uh, every child should be able to have. You should be able to have two parents who who love you and who are going to take care of you and, and make sacrifices to try to give you the best life possible. Um, I also know people who grew up with just a mother. Um, the father lived separately. They still had time with him, but, you know, every day was pretty much them with their mother for most days. And they also were able to turn out fine. You know, they're, they're doing very well in life. They're, they're very successful, have high paying jobs and um, professional jobs, STEM fields. You know, they, they were able to, to make it out fine as well. So um, unfortunately, I wish I had a better answer for you on, on what to do and how to address that. Again, the outcomes just are what they are. Um, but when we're talking about the question of why aren't more men in the home, period, I mean, I think that's a separate conversation that has to be addressed. You know, regarding black men specifically, we got 1.5 million that are caught up in the prison system. That's 1.5 million who aren't with their kids. And there are still some disparities in sentencing and things like of that nature that have to be addressed in order to to sort of have that conversation and deal with that issue. So there are other factors that might be contributing that we have to uh, to address again, not just in terms of of one race, but just men in general. I will say this as well because one, one of the guys that I interviewed for uh, for my article on this was Josh Levs, and he's a commentator. He's an author. And he wrote an entire book on the subject of fatherlessness, and he presented data, um, and not just this this uh, CDC census data, but also he spent time in 
prisons and interviewed fathers who were in jail away from their kids for this book. Yeah. Um, so he has a very unique perspective on this as well, because you get to hear it sort of from the, the horse's mouth. Um, it's not something that any of those gentlemen preferred. It's not the ideal situation by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but one of the things that he pointed out in this book is that fatherlessness in general is vastly overestimated because of the, the misreadings of data that we sort of got into earlier. Mm -hmm. So um, there's two conversations. One is understanding that the numbers aren't quite as bad as people are making it seem, but we also still have a problem that needs to be addressed. So I actually thought to myself, when I first heard the statistic had risen to 72, and then people were even saying 78%. And I was like, that just seems so odd because most of the people that I know, and of course, who you know is anecdotal, right? It's always anecdotal. I don't know millions of people, but I do know a lot of Black families where regardless of the situation between the parents, the dads are extremely active. And I also think in the Black community, like there, there's a statistic about um, that's parroted by the left a lot that Black Americans are harmed by voter ID laws. But the statistics show that whenever you enact a voter ID legislation, Black people turn out at the, at the highest turnout, well over 60%. Sometimes yeah. it's 67% of Black people turning out to vote. And the whites are at like 45 to 55, you know, Hispanics even below that. And it, and it, so they already had high turnout. Yeah. You enact a voter ID law where you have to show an ID, Blacks then add 10 to 15% more voter turnout. So that is something that is a persistent falsehood parroted by the media that's not true. Right. And so I wondered to myself, uh, and I, I think, you know, some of the people who do the viral videos, they've gone out on the streets of New York and said, do you have an ID? You know, they asked. Oh, Ami Horowitz. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, the black people are like, of course I do. Would I be caught out in these streets in New York without an ID? Right. Or I'm on my way to such and so and so. I can't get in the gym without my ID, you know. So the, the whole point is that there's a discussion about it and then there's the truth about it. So to me, it, it just seems to me like, and I, I look on Instagram a lot, I look on Reels a lot, and there's a whole community of Black dads who are podcasters, and their podcast topic is family. Um, some of their podcasts have dad in the name, and they're advocating for um, different ways of, you know, basically living and breathing in, in this space in 2022 that make their lives easier because they work from home, but they're also a full-time dad. You know, the, the mom works from home, so they're, they're co-parenting. They're in the same household, but their discussion is, how do I make it easier to get, you know, three kids in the minivan and go pick up this and then also go shoot videos? Or, you know, how do I edit all my video content and then do my podcast and still take the kids out to their afternoon, you know, because this is my afternoon to take them out because their mom is going out to a book club or something like that. Right. I find these things to be, highly engaging. And the dads are all professionals. They're all college educated and they're all black. And I don't mean like Hollywood black. I mean, they're just like regular black guys, only they have this unique perspective of kind of basically being a dad out front. It's not yeah. their work that's out front. It's their right. parenthood that's out front. And so there is a bit of a thing that we do in communities and Hispanics do it too. Um, their thing is a lot of people will just, as soon as they hear your last name, they assume you're in the country illegally. And all, the majority of Hispanics are not in the country illegally. So they're really bristling at that. And right. so they try to be law abiding to combat that stereotype about them. 
they they try to be contributing members of their community. You know, so basically they have to be a model citizen to combat this idea that they're here illegally. Right. So dads are trying to be black dads are trying to be model dads to combat this idea that no black dads are in the home because the statistic is overwhelming, 72%. That means they're just like, you're basically an elite. If you are a black kid and your dad lives in the same house with you, you're an elite. So what you're describing sounds to me like it's a backlash of sorts, but it works in the, to the benefit of children because the dad- I don't know if it's a backlash though. I mean, I think it's, I think it maybe underscores exactly what those uh, census data was showing in terms of involvement versus having signed a marriage license or not. Uh, I mean, just because you don't validate your relationship with the state doesn't mean you're not in your kid's life. It doesn't mean you're not picking them up for practice. It doesn't mean you're not playing games with them. It doesn't right. mean you're not changing the diaper. And, and I think that's what those narratives sort of underscore. And I am seeing more support uh, amongst Black fathers as well in the same types of forums and, and accounts sharing those type of things. I don't know if it's necessarily to combat uh, a statistic for some sort of optics again, for political points on the other side, as well, much as it is say, just just demonstrating that it. these type of fathers actually exist, you yeah. know, this is taking place in real life. There are good black daddies out there and there are a lot, and there are a lot who want to get better and yeah, who want no, to continue I, to do the right things and who aren't bailing on their, ch their children and they, and they are paying child support. And they, you know what I mean? I do. So, I, I understand what you're saying, but I'm not, I'm not saying a backlash as in to score political points. I'm saying... Yeah. We, we all tend to do that. For myself, the stereotype for me is I'm a black woman. So obviously my children don't all have the same father. I don't yeah. know, you know, I don't live with their father. Right. And so it's not that I'm, I backlash or I'm trying to score a political point, but I do go out of my way to nip that in the bud when I first meet someone. If yeah. the, the conversation turns to family, I just go ahead and completely address that beforehand. My husband and I have three kids. And I didn't even notice I was doing it until someone mentioned to me, he was like, oh, it was one of the first things you ever uh, told me about was that you're married and you have three kids. Was, he said, mm. it was like the second thing you said to me after we were introduced. Okay. And I said, what, really? And I thought about it and, I, and after thinking about it for a while, I thought, you know, I'm doing this because if I don't say that, then it becomes almost an uncomfortable assumption that the person right. makes when they find out I have kids. Right. And they don't know how to properly and unawkwardly kind of say it, they 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 want to know. So I just nip it in the bud. So it's not a backlash. I'm not a I'm not a good mom or I'm not married because of the statistic, but it is right. something that I kind of address. And I was almost doing it unconsciously. And so when I say about the dads, uh, they're obviously doing that. Black fathers are doing that because they love their kids. They they want to have a relationship with them. But there is a certain element of nipping a stereotype in the bud that we all will engage in, especially if we've encountered that stereotype in the past. Um, so that's, that's what I'm referring to. I, I definitely believe that parents who are more involved, see, that's that's the ideal model. The Bible tells us to be involved in our children's lives by teaching them about the way in right. the morning, in the midday, in the noonday, at night, you know, when they rise, when they go to bed, we're supposed to be doing that. And the offshoot of doing that is that you are talking to your child all day long. And that right. is the biblical model for parenthood. And so I really believe in that. And I think advocating for that is really important. So when we're talking about two parent households and and the family structure, there is a benefit. You know, men who are married actually earn more than single men. Um, mm -hmm. Statistically speaking, you advance on your career faster if you're married with children. Right. Um, we, we don't know all of the rudiments of it. It has been studied, mm -hmm. but we haven't had 
a definitive case where you could say it's because you're married with kids or your boss is more favorable to you because you're a family man. Mm-hmm. I know men who have families are more driven. I have actually seen that in, in you know, the, the way that they work and kind of drive forward to try to earn more money. It right. seems to be centered on being married and having kids, being a driver for that kind of uh, ambition, if you will, and the work ethic. Mm-hmm. But on the main, we know that it's better to have a two-parent household for wealth attainment, for longevity, for health, for wellness, and for raising a family. Right. So we've kind of we've talked about this, but I, I just want to wrap it up for our listeners. Um, we want to say that, but we don't want to discount the amazing job that many non-traditional families are doing in raising families and experiencing the American dream. What tip would you give to those who are listening who might wade into this conversation? What tip would you give them on how to how to enunciate that? Well, on, on how to what on how to have the, the discussion? Yeah, I mean, because policy. You know, we we know we want more two parent households, but we can't just force people to do it, and we certainly can't browbeat people into doing that. It, it's kind of circumstances and choices coming together. Yeah, well, I think from a policy standpoint, I and mean, we were kind of having a discussion about what are the types of things that would ultimately bring about the results that we would like to see on a macro level, right? So, um, for instance, avoiding poverty. We know if you do three things: if you graduate high school, if you get a job, and if you wait until you're married to have kids you are statistically very unlikely to remain permanently poor in the United States. Not to discount the the exceptions, but that's just kind of the general rule. And I think there's a way we can have a discussion about, hey, this is the ideal situation, but if for some reason, maybe through no fault of your own, the relationship just didn't work, and or maybe for safety reasons, it's best that you're not with the father, you, there's still a way that you can make it work. But again, ideally, this is this is what tends to be the tends to produce the best outcomes in these particular areas. And again, I think it comes back to uh, understanding the intent of the person having the conversation. So if people feel that you have a vested interest in their future and that you actually care about improving their situation and, and they're not going to really, uh, I would say, have some sort of a negative reaction to, to these types of conversations. What I tend to see in these types of conversations online or in person is that people have reactions when they don't trust the motives of the person who's engaging in the dialogue with them. So, and that comes back to just basic, really, I mean, we're, we're sort of in the political world and this is a, a really hot button, well, I don't say hot button, but it's, it's a political issue, but it comes back to relationship building and building networks with the people that you're doing outreach with and that you wanna reach. If you have those relationships established, you can have the uncomfortable conversations, but if people feel like you're, you're, you're dismissive and disrespectful, they're gonna be far less likely to want to take on a challenging issue with you, whether it's this topic or any other one. Yeah. So it's about trust, building relationships, and then moving from there. Absolutely. Well, I have to say, uh, it's a conversation we're just beginning. And I know that's kind of weird when you're talking about you know marriage and family policy. You say, oh, how could you just be beginning the conversation? Well, a conversation that's contentious and filled with mistrust is not really a conversation that's an argument or a disagreement. And if we want to have a conversation that leads to good policy, um, we have to start with the trust and the relationship that you've described. And I think that's so important. And I think it's a great way for us to close out here. Looking forward to chatting with you again. Uh, I just want to tell everyone how they can find more about you. First off, go to newsweek.com. You can also buy Adrian's new book. It's The Art of the Steel, 
actually, I think you wrote this a couple of years ago during the election season. Uh, tell us. Um, what it was right before the midterms. Yeah, it was right before the midterm. Perfect. Kind of a warning that wasn't heated. Well, you know, sometimes people have to learn the hard way. That's yeah. what my mom used to always say. Oh, I warned you about that. Sometimes yeah. people have to learn the hard way. Um, but they can find your book. I'll put a link in the show notes for that. And of course, a link to Project 21. Thank you so much for coming on today. I really look forward to chatting with you again. Thank you so much. I appreciated talking with you today. All right. Great to have you. And you can find out more at familyvisionmedia.org. I'm Stacey Washington. See you next time.